Coming up this evening, an NTD business. Inflation hitting a new 40-year high. From gas, food and housing prices, they're rising across the board. Russia retaliates against Western sanctions, removing patent protections, essentially allowing Russian businesses to steal patents. And a unique flower shop in the heart of New York City, supplying Broadway shows and some of the biggest names in Hollywood. R. Evelyn Lee brings you to this story of a 100-year-old company is carrying on traditional craftsmanship. That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us. Paul Graney here live from New York City. I'm afraid we begin this evening with bad news for your wallet. Inflation didn't get any better last month. In fact, prices are rising even faster. If you ask the government, inflation hasn't been this bad in 40 years. CPI is up 7.9% over the past 12 months. Gas and food, basic necessities, are rising faster than anything else. Gas prices alone contributed nearly a third of the overall inflation increase. Talk about pain at the pump. If gas prices stay this high, families could shell out about $1,300 more a year on average. Moody's Analytics did the math on Monday's national average. Prices have gone up even more since then and are likely continued to rise. In fact, the folks from Moody's worry an additional $1,300 on gas might actually be an underestimate. Not only that, spending this much on gas could force families to cut back elsewhere, which could bring its own problems for the economy and weigh on consumer confidence. I could put pressure on Biden and the Democrats in the run-up to the midterm elections later this year. They're coming. The president today again calling rising gas prices the Putin price hike even though prices were already steadily rising before the invasion. Republicans blame the Democrats' climate change policies for rising prices. Keep in mind, 60% of U.S. electricity came from fossil fuels in 2021. Top energy official says a lack of investment is holding back oil production, not the government. Amos Hochstein told producers to do whatever it takes to ramp up production. It's wartime, he said. But investors may be less encouraged by comments from Senator Elizabeth Warren. She wants to tax oil companies more if their margins increase during the war. We get it, supply and demand, that prices go up. But profit margins should not go up. That's just oil companies gout. So joining us with the oil producer side of the story is Jerry Simmons, president of the Domestic Energy Producers Alliance. Jerry, thank you. Good to see you. Hi, Paul. Great to be with you. So, Jerry, is the Biden administration holding back oil production? I, I think in, in, in your invitation to, to talk to your, your audience today, I, I kind of thought what I might say uh, to start with. And, and if you don't mind, let me read just a few quotes uh, from uh, a primary uh, uh, debate in 2019. The question was asked of Biden, would there be any place for fossil fuels, including coal and fracking, in a Biden administration? His answer was no. We would work it out. We would make sure it's eliminated and no more subsidies for either of those, no more fossil fuels. Uh, he looked at a young woman in one of his rallies and said, uh, kiddo, I want to take you and, and, and have you look at my eyes. I guarantee you I'm going to end fossil fuels. Uh, and another quote from him is, no more subsidies for fossil fuel industry, no more drilling on federal lands, no more drilling, including offshore, 
no ability for the industry to continue to drill, the, it ends. That's what he said as he became president. So uh, from the day that he was inaugurated, you can go to gasbuddy.com and look at a chart, and it shows the gas prices going up uh, almost daily uh, since his inauguration. It actually started on the day of the election uh, in, in, in November of, of uh, uh, 2020. And, and Jerry, uh, why, yes. why is it important? Why is the support of the government so important? Why not just, you know, as private enterprise, we still have a free market here. Why not just go and, and produce the oil? Right. And, and uh, there, there have been statements recently about uh, the, the production on federal lands and all. And uh, most of the production in this country is actually on private land. So so that's a great question, Paul. Uh, the, the thing is, when you when you make these statements about an industry and, and as the president, the incoming president, uh, then you set, kind of set the stage. And what's happened is after 2020, where the oil industry was devastated because of prices. Uh, well, remember in April of 2020, the price closed one day at a negative $38 a barrel. Uh, so with, with that in mind and, and the devastation we had had as an industry, like everybody else in 2020, to have a president come in with this, to get investor money, to get capital, to go do what we need to do to drill the wells. Uh, a typical uh, well today Day cost about eight million dollars to drill. This isn't this isn't cheap, easy stuff. And these projects take years in development to, to get everything done, to get the geology right, the engineering, and all of the infrastructure around it. Again, the Biden administration has put up roadblocks to infrastructure since coming in office the, through regulations, the, the the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission that, that permits pipelines. Uh, they've got new regulations now that that require. Uh, some assessments that never have been required before. So those kind of things have, have hampered our efforts to ramp up production. So when the administration says that investment is a problem, a, a, a bottleneck, I think, is the way they put it. They're, they're, it's not a lot. They're not, they're not telling tall tales. Investment is a problem. Yes, it's a problem, and they have they have thrown uh, gas on that fire. Uh, not not to be funny, but uh, but that's exactly what they've done through some of their regulatory things. Uh, one of the administration's nominees to to sit on uh, on the Fed uh, has made statements about the oil and gas industry, and and there should be no more banking, no more financing. And uh, she hasn't been confirmed yet, but but that's a concern when when you have people like that in the administration making those statements. And speaking to investors, what do they want to hear? Or do you think there's been too much rhetoric, in your words, to actually convince them to come back on board? You know, if if the president would make statements and say, and say, I retract those statements that we're going to end oil and gas and fossil fuels, and it's a necessary uh, it's a industry, and it's it's a it's a net a necessity for our way of life in this country and globally, uh, and I'm not going to restrict it. I think that that would be huge, but but I don't see that coming. If you got the full support from the administration, like you said, how long would it take you guys to bring gas prices down? Uh, it's it's going to take several months uh, to get the production back up. We are about a million barrels a day less production now in this country than we were pre-pandemic. -pand so uh, uh, 
late 2019, uh, we were uh, almost 13 million barrels a day in U.S. production. Now we're uh, a little under 12 million. So, um, and and the the Russian oil and and uh, and refined products that just got uh, banned by by President Biden, that's about 700,000 barrels a day uh, that that we consume of, of Russian product. So. So that's going to take a while. Uh, like I said, you've got to plan these projects out, and you've got to have the investor confidence that uh, that it's it's going to last. Really appreciate it, Jerry. Jerry Simmons, Domestic Energy Producers Alliance. Thank you. Till next time. Thank you, Paul. And in another financial blow to Russia today, Goldman Sachs announced it's no longer going to do business there. That makes it the first major Wall Street bank to leave Russia since it invaded Ukraine. Spokesperson said the move is, quote, in compliance with regulatory and licensing requirements. It's unclear how many people the bank employs in Russia or how much money it makes there. Citigroup also announced plans to halt consumer business in Russia, but is still supporting corporate clients there, including many U.S. and European companies. British authorities have had Russian billionaire Roman Abramovich with a travel ban and an asset freeze. Britain tightening the screws and oligarchs to, with close ties to Putin. Abramovich famously owns the Chelsea soccer franchise. He's one of seven Russian businessmen who Britain added to its sanctions list. All seven will be subject to acid freezes and travel bans, with attempts to circumvent the sanctions being a criminal offense. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson called the move the latest step in Britain's support for Ukraine. Moscow has been hit with crippling sanctions that threaten to cast Russia into its gravest crisis since the collapse of the Soviet Union some 30 years ago. Besides government sanctions, a large and growing number of private companies have also cut business ties with Russia. You've heard the desperate times call for deficit measures. Well, Russia has officially legalized patent theft through official government decree. And now it's planning on seizing the assets of every firm that leaves the country. Today's fake quarter has more. Russia has removed patent protections for companies registered in unfriendly countries, which include all 27 EU members, the United States and the United Kingdom. Patents are basically inventions, mostly, that are protected uh, by governments. When a country makes a decision to not enforce those protections, it essentially not only legalizes theft, but it encourages knockoffs. Oscar Gomez is a business attorney at EPGD Attorneys at Law. His firm is offering free legal services to displaced Ukrainians. Gomez says Russia already had a bad reputation regarding intellectual property rights. People should be on the lookout for uh, any official action with respect to trademarks. That's going to have even more of a broader impact because there's no protections for the actual brands to be able to enforce their rights to the marks. Companies have no reason to do business in Russia. And Russia is also considering nationalizing the assets of foreign firms that leave the country. It says this will prevent bankruptcy and save jobs. Nationalization is just taking private ownership and converting it over to the ownership of the state itself. They're looking at an existential economic crisis going into a black hole that there may, no, may be no exit from. And so at that point, they're just looking to kind of stop the bleeding, to keep people working so that even if they're getting paid in currency that's becoming ever worth less every day, 
they have something there as opposed to nothing. Nicholas Creel is a business professor at Georgia College and State University. Creel says this act of desperation is probably the best thing they can do since Russian leader Vladimir Putin isn't backing off the military operations. The problem long term is only going to be all the worse whenever you consider that no one, even if Russia calls off its, invest, uh, in, its invasion entirely and pulls back, the long term investment prospects in Russia are now pretty much down to zero. Because now that fear of if they've done it once in recent memory, they can do it again is always going to be in the back of the head of every country thinking about investing there. Russia says companies that resume operations within five days wouldn't be taken over. If they don't resume, the government would run the company for three months, followed by an auction of the new organization's shares. Bay Quarter, NTD News. And back in the States, the House passed a massive spending package late yesterday, including $13 billion in emergency aid for Ukraine. That's on top of $1.5 trillion in funding to avoid a government shutdown, keep things running through September 30th. The aid for Ukraine has received bipartisan support in Congress. The latest package will be split across military and humanitarian funding for Ukrainian citizens. More than 2 million have already fled the country. Meanwhile, House Democrats were forced to remove a roughly $15 billion COVID-19 aid initiative. The Senate is expected to vote on the Ukraine aid and federal funding package later this week. And a tech watchdog is accusing Amazon of using suppliers linked to forced labor in China. Amazon isn't the only company facing questions about its Chinese supply chain. Anthony's Colin Fredrickson has more. Amazon is working with suppliers that are linked to the use of forced labor in China, according to a recent report by the Tech Transparency Project, or TTP. It is difficult for, for companies, for, for, for importers here in the U.S. to, to know that they face uh, difficulties as well in getting information. There have been public warnings about these suppliers, but Amazon continues to work with them. Fred Rockefort is an attorney with extensive legal experience in China. He says it's difficult to snuff out forced labor practices. At the same time, he says that, unfortunately, there are importers who are not interested in finding out whether their suppliers are using forced labor. TTP found that five suppliers for Amazon Basics were previously linked to forced labor practices. Those allegations came from both think tanks and journalists. Amazon told NTD that they comply with applicable laws and regulations in the areas where they operate and that they take action when they receive proof of forced labor. And Amazon is not alone. Apple and other Silicon Valley giants have been similarly accused, though Apple said it has found no evidence of forced labor anywhere they operate. In December, President Biden signed a law that blocks the importation of products from the Xinjiang region. That's unless it can be proven that no forced labor was involved. The greater problem is that the, the, the forced labor problem in, in Xinjiang has extended uh, past Xinjiang's borders. Uh, this is well documented. Uh, the, the government authorities enable the, the transfer of laborers from Xinjiang to other parts of China. But government entities and the companies that are accused of using forced labor don't always provide access for inspections. I don't think it's likely to shrink uh, anytime soon, though. It's going to take some time to take that market share away from China. Like Hagen, Rockefort thinks it's difficult to boycott products from China since the U.S. relies on them so much. 
He says that the U.S. needs to take a much broader view and reassess its entire trade relationship with China. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. Wall Street resumed its sell-off today. All three major indexes ended in the red. The Dow fell 112 points, one-third of a percent. The S&P 500 lost 18 points, four-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq lost 126 points, almost one percent today. And in a 180, United Airlines plans to let unvaccinated workers come back to work. It's according to a memo seen by the FR Times. In the memo, United's VP of Human Resources says COVID cases have plunged and many cities and states are lifting restrictions. So he says United is confident they can safely let employees return to work. United was the first U.S. airline to impose a company-wide vaccine mandate. Workers were supposed to be able to apply for a religious or medical exemption. But a federal lawsuit says for some workers, even after they were granted a religious exemption, they're forced to stop working, even receive no pay, among other things. That lawsuit is still ongoing. United fired more than 200 workers for not getting the shot. Now with this new policy, will those workers get their jobs back? United declined to say. And also today, the federal government extended its mask mandate for public transportation, meaning you'll still have to wear your masks on trains and airports until at least April 18th. But that would take a quick break, but still to come, stay with us. A special kind of flower shop in the heart of New York City. A work ethic and a sense of for business survival helped it succeed when others gave up. More on that coming up on NTD Business. back. Traditional craftsmanship in the Big Apple. This artificial flower shop is the last of its kind in the city. Today it supplies flowers to Broadway shows, some of the biggest names in Hollywood and the fashion industry. Here's Anthony's Evelyn Lee with the story of a survivor. This is the last artificial flower shop in all of New York City and you've seen them in Hollywood movies and fashion shows and in fashion magazines. And this is where they come alive. Right in the heart of the fashion capital of the world, amid fast fashion and offshoring, there is a spot where traditional craftsmanship has prevailed. For over a hundred years, one family and their staff have been shaping these unique flowers by hand. Adam Brandt, M&S Schmalberg's current owner, welcomed us into the showroom and took us on a tour. This is the place where each flower starts its journey. And if you don't know what your flower should look like at this point, don't worry, you'll find plenty of inspiration. So what's also really cool about the stockroom is that you can use this as design ideas. And one of my favorite examples is the designer from Vera Wang was here at this point probably three or four years ago, and she was looking for a parrot tulip. And I'm the flower guy, but I didn't know what that was. I, I went on Google, I pulled up pictures, and in the end I convinced her to come here and she went through all of these boxes and pulled 
portions of this flower and part of that flower and some of those and created this like Franken flower, like Frankenstein, with all these different things that didn't match. And now the flower has become a staple in Vera Wang's shows. Brand shows us machines and tools that have been around since before he was born. Raise the bar, raise the arm. And find the perfect spot for it. Some of the staff have been around since before he was born too. And they're the reason for each flower's detail and quality. Brand says although full automation and laser cutters are faster, the flowers wouldn't have the same texture and detail. Before the fabric is cut, it's soaked in starch. This way the fabric will hold its shape better later in the process. Then it is cut into shape with tools, many of which are more than a hundred years old. The oldest ones have a stem like this, and in the old days, you would take a rubber hammer, you'd swing really hard, and that would be how you cut out flower petals. But nowadays, there are machines to help out. They are heavier than they look. Yes. <laughs> oh, wow, yeah, they look heavy, but they're even heavier in real reality. Here in the next room, employees are crafting each flower one layer of petals at a time. And currently, they're working on custom orders for Vera Wang and the San Francisco Opera. They also get custom projects where the customers bring fabric themselves. That's often material that's sentimental to them. And all the flowers that you order here can actually be custom made. Adam, the owner, just told me you can make them out of almost every fabric you can think of, even leather, silk, or vintage wedding dresses. I sat down with the owner for a one-on-one -on -one to go in depth about the flower shop's history. So thank you very much, Adam, for sitting down with me today. Thank you. Um, just to start off, can you tell me a little bit more about the starts of this business? So the company name is m and which is named after my great-great-uncles, Morris and Sam Schmalberg. The company was started in 1916, which makes us 105-plus years old. When they started the business, there were, I, I read recently, 100-plus, 150 feather and flower manufacturers in New York City. And that number blows my mind because today we are the only flower manufacturer in New York City. Brand tells NTD that his grandfather was a Holocaust survivor. After he had lost both his parents, two brothers and a sister in the war, he came to New York and slowly took on the business. His story is very much the story of a survivor. Another sad part about his life is my grandfather Harold was shot in possibly 82. Around then there was some sort of dispute here at our old location and one of the employees pulled out a gun and shot him. And my whole life knowing my grandpa, he was in pain from that. He survived. But this is, you know, my grandfather was a survivor by true and true. And uh, at that time my dad and my aunt had to step up and they took over the business. So we were definitely a survivor. Uh, whenever my dad would do factory tours, he would always emphasize the survivorness of us, of my grandfather and how he kind of passed down those traits to us. Uh, like I said, there used to be a lot of factories doing what we do. As, as the garment center has changed and everything has gone offshore, these factories have all, have to, all had to close. Uh, 
it's always been an up and down industry. He said what made his grandpa great was that he would have savings to fall back on, and he got creative when flowers went out of style. He'd go to some of our clients and they would give him off cuts of fabric. He'd go with $100. He'd come back, he'd open a little, fa he opened a little fabric store and he would sell those for $200. And then he went back there with $200 and they gave him a little more. So to keep the business going, he would sell fabric. I've been told stories that he sold Christmas wreaths at one point. Arnold Palmer t-shirts, uh, just anything to keep the doors open until the next flower power boom came. Uh, my, my dad and my aunt definitely continue those traits. My dad, people always ask, like, why we're the one who survived when the other ones chose to close. I think a lot of it has to do with my dad, my aunt, my grandpa, my, my grandma, and, and just the, the way they work this business. And I, I mean, I already guessed that with your business or your family's business existing since 1916, COVID was probably not the only <laughs> crisis you guys went through. But hearing all this, you know, what, why is it so important to you personally to keep this business afloat and alive and well? So the business has definitely endured a lot of, I don't know if we'll call them crisis, but a lot of ups and downs over the years, ranging from the Great Depression, which I never even thought about until recently, that we, that we survived, and, and just different times when flowers weren't in style. Uh, for me, I got to see the COVID era directly. And, and as I grew up and started to really appreciate what I had here, I, I've, I've grown to love it. I, I, see, I meet people every day that have made, they, They've made our, our business into like an icon. People from Australia that have heard about us for 20 years and always wanted to come here. And then they walk through the doors and they're looking around in awe. And I've gotten to see it through those people's eyes. And it, it has changed everything about the way I think about this place. I, I love it. I want to help it continue for, for the next 100 years. Eventually, if my daughter Skylar wants to take it over, give her the option. Today, M&S Schmalberg supplies some of the biggest names in Hollywood, top designers and Broadway shows. Evelyn Lee, NTD News. Beautiful story. That's the latest from the NTD business team and myself, Paul Graney. Can still catch NTD Evening News with Stephanie Cox at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. Chenny Wu is sitting in today, actually. For NTD Business, it's all for today. Thank you for watching. We'll see you tomorrow.